Today, we begin a new conversation. A conversation about our existence and about the significance of your life and mine. About those things which are difficult at times to talk about. Now, who am I? Well, let me start by telling you who I'm not. I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a PhD, and I'm not a journalist, I'm not a radio host, some media personality, I don't have a Facebook page with over a million followers, or a star on the Walk of Fame. That's not me at all. I'm you. I'm just a nine-to-five, paycheck-to-paycheck, day-to-day living, house and kids, just trying to make it work kind of Joe. We've come to a place in our history where we no longer need to be a name to have a forum. We no longer need to be accepted by the majority to be heard. We don't need a company, a base, a trademark, a few million. All you need to be is you. To be willing. To be willing just to listen. And to be willing to search, to explore, and, and also to take a seat at the table where everyone, everyone is welcome to join the conversation. It was Shakespeare who said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. All of life is a cycle. It's, all of life is a revolution. But life is more than a heartbeat, it's more than organs, it's more than function. It's being, who we are, who we touch, and the, influ and the influence we leave behind. It comes down to that one question that we always ask but really never answer. Who am I? I've asked it, and you've asked it. Who am I? Maybe you've never really answered the question, and maybe you don't want to. I think it's the scariest question to ask, because even if you answer it, sometimes the answer that you give may just be what you've always wanted it to be, but just aren't yet. Or maybe you answer it with the God-honest truth, and when you say it, it reveals the very thing you don't want to admit or want to be. Either way, the answer is telling and gives each of us a choice. To be or not to be. To change or not to change. To live or not to live. And by choosing to live, I don't mean the fact that you're alive, your heart is beating, breathing, and your bodily functions are normal. I mean, are you actually living? Are you living a life that you can taste, and that you can savor, feel it in between your fingertips, a, a breathing that fills your very being, a living of mind, of body and soul? So who am I? And who are you? For too long, each of us has allowed the world to dictate and control how we live. Think of it. We live in a life of boxes. 
all engineered by others. We feel the need to follow the consensus. If the trend is A, then convention says, I must live A. A small group over here in some committee room has taken a vote. They say, university is necessary in order to be successful. If you take this particular major area of study, you must only read these authors and take classes from only these type of professors. These theories are the only ones accepted, whatever that means, of course. These are the only ways to interpret texts and poetry and art and science and history, politics, theology, and on and on and on, until the revolution comes back round and someone dares to ask the question, why? Why is it this way? Society says, be all you can be, but then says, to be, you must inhabit this space that has been accepted, voted, and engineered by the established consensus, and everything outside of it is irrelevant. So you and I become products of a system built by some nexus, this great abstract. You and I are just a number. Now, I'm not suggesting, and I'm not getting into a debate about whether we should go to college or not and get an education, or even to listen to the voices of others and study the theories and the research others have done. My problem isn't with education, it's with convention. Another example, let's say, uh, uh, in terms of science, being a scientist, you can only believe and accept certain criteria. If you believe something other than the convention, the agreed-upon truth of the day, then you're an outsider, a dissident, a fraud, and, and deserve to be marginalized, thrown out. You don't belong with society because you are asking questions that no one else is asking and that no one should be asking. But isn't that the act of questioning, curiosity, and re-examination that allows us to discover the new? Even if it means breaking with convention? Am I, are you only relevant when we speak and act and behave exactly like everyone else? Who sets the standards for that? What is the point of reference that ties everything together and coalesces our being to what we believe and to how we should live in our world? The answer to the question of who we are then becomes a metaphysical one. It also becomes a foundational question that roots us into an absolute reality that already exists in the universe. It therefore comes down to a more basic question of fact. If I am, and who you are matters, then knowing and understanding the answer gives us purpose. And if there is purpose, then purpose presupposes that there's an undeniable truth of our existence. So, that the next logical question is, what is truth?
two questions, both a pursuit. One is the journey of identity and the other a pursuit of meaning. With both, one must first look back if they are to be able to look forward. Our past is part of our identity. It's part of what allows us to define who we are in the now, in the present. And once you've answered, or at least really struggled with that question, who am I? You must then take a hard look at the world in which we exist and honestly ask, where is this all going? If there is purpose to your life and to mine, then there is purpose in the world we live in. The path of the future is laid with the bricks of history. You can't separate them. The context in which we live lies in the past. And we must take we must make it a point to know the stories of the past because only then will will we be able to answer the question of truth. We'll be able to answer questions about who we are and then be able to decide rightly what our role is in the world that we live in. It was called the Great War. The Great War that would end all wars. But it would be the bloodiest and deadliest war the globe had ever seen to that time. It was the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Ingenuity and invention were peaking to heights that had not been seen before. The birth of the 20th century brought with it a hope and a drive for growth and new opportunity for mankind and a brighter future. But even with the dawn of a new age and scientific discovery and an explosion of the intellect and entrepreneurship, it seemed that some things really never changed. The bloody history of humanity's wars, instead of becoming a thing of the past, with all of our advancement, only intensified, adding to the list a host of dead that really goes beyond our understanding. What so many have called a time of progress in our world, like noted psychologist Steven Pinker, who was quoted as saying, Something in modernity and its cultural institutions has made us nobler. That statement seems to rival simple facts and common sense. It's estimated that 15 million, 15 million died in the First World War alone. 15 million. And what about the Russian Civil War that happened within the middle of the First World War? Nine million are estimated to have died in that. Look at the Soviet Union under Stalin's regime. 20 million like that gone. Go to the Second World War. 55 million. 55 million, almost triple what the First World War ended up being in terms of dead. What about other civil wars like the Chinese Civil War? 2.5 million. Now, 
these are just five of the 63 documented wars of the 20th century, some of which cannot be qualified as actual wars, but even worse are cases of ethnic cleansing and genocide. Take the numbers of the total dead of each of these 63 wars or conflicts, and the total sum comes to 190 plus million. Now, at, at what point do we cringe at this number? Is this the definition of social progress? Is this somehow a nobler culture? Is this who we are after all is said and done? Is this our legacy, 190 plus million dead? Now, after the first uh, great war, or, or, or World War I, it was writer and poet named Rudyard Kipling that would offer a commentary on the culture that was rearing its ugly head in the midst of the so-called ennobling of man. Of the many poems and stories and publications he had written to that time, which, by the way, one of them is the popular Jungle Book. Yeah, this is the author of Jungle Book. Of all the many stories and publications, including Jungle Book, that this great author wrote, there's one poem that emerges not so much as a description as it is a warning. He called it The Gods of the Copybook Headings. The gods of the copybook headings represent, in this poem, the principles by which all man lives by. They are principles that are eternal. Principles of life that are not, cannot be changed. Like liberty, conscience, good and evil, right and wrong. And then, the poem also has the gods of the marketplace who represent the modern and alternative ways of thinking which always are at odds with these gods of the copybook headings, these principles. These principles which are values that are eternal in nature, undefiled, like love of country, God, marriage, family, morality. When these things begin to wear old and thin, and don't agree with the so-called progress of the gods of the marketplace, they are no longer relevant. And so society calls for their alteration or their elimination. Or perhaps not even as something as severe as that. A softer and more academic alternative is an evolution or a reimagination of such values. Here's a bit of the poem. This is um, middle towards the end of the poem. He says, as it will be in the future, it was at the birth of man. There are only four things certain since social progress began. That the dog returns to his vomit and the soul returns to her mire, and the burnt fool's bandaged finger goes wobbling back to the fire. And that after this is accomplished and the brave new world begins when all men are paid for existing and no man must pay for his sins, as surely as water will wet us, as surely as fire will burn, the gods of the copybook headings with terror and slaughter return. When all men are paid for existing, life that requires payment, 
life sold for profit, life relegated to dollar signs and zeros? Does that describe anything we know about in our society? When no man must pay for his sins, no good, no re- uh, there's no good, no, no evil. After all, if there's no debt to pay, then there's no law to keep. All is acceptable. There's no accountability, no brotherhood, no regard for what is decent, honorable, good, and righteous. No regard for what is true. It really is the fundamental cornerstone of our existence. But it's the hardest thing to accept. Truth is messy. Because it's hard. It's pure. It's, it, it isn't partial. And it doesn't favor. It is what it is exactly because it doesn't care whether you like it or not. Whether you like what it's saying or not. It isn't nuanced. It isn't seeking approval. It's raw. It's unmoving, undeniable, sharp. And it isn't going anywhere. We see wars abroad. We, we also see wars here at home. Lives are lost on the battlefield. Blood is shed. And here at home, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, we ban, we character bash, we boycott, we destroy the lives and livelihoods of people all under the guise of self-righteousness and social justice. We speak against bullying, all along become the bully, when people with a viewpoint opposite of ours voices it and acts on conscience. We become accuser, judge, and jury. We speak of fairness, while putting on the mask of vigilante, pointing out all the dissidents of society, never once thinking about their homes, their spouses, their children, their families, their community, and all because we disagree. In 2011, CNS News reported that since 1973, almost 50 million human beings have been killed in abortions. 2013, over 2,000 Christians died as a result of persecution. 2014, the number doubles to over 4,000 Christians. 2015, over 7,000. Terrorist attacks have become too much of a thing of commonplace in our world. Since 9-11, terrorism is no longer an infrequent occurrence. And it isn't just Istanbul, Orlando, Paris, San Bernardino, Paris again, and in London, time and time again, we see more and more of these terrorist attacks. And these are just the few that have made the news. In a 2013 CNN blog report, it was estimated that over 15,000 people were killed in terrorist attacks around the world. That's 2013. ABC reported 17,000 deaths due to terrorism worldwide that same year. What do we do when we come face to face with hard facts like these? 
what happens on the inside. Forget about what you say or even what you don't say when you're out with your friends and your social circles. What happens when you and the truth are found alone and you realize it isn't going anywhere? Is it a struggle? Is it a tug of war? What do you do with it? Do you react with indifference? Panic? Ignorance? Common wisdom today says that truth is all about interpretation or whatever happens to be in vogue within society. Truth is painted in different colors. And frame it around preconceived notions and not only are you willing to accept it, you're willing to hang it above your mantle for all the world to see. After all, truth is only in the eye of the beholder. Why not encase truth in a kaleidoscope that goes round and round and round with no end in sight? Or do you simply respond to truth with raw acceptance, as it is? No. Because, you see, acceptance means bowing the knee, admitting I'm wrong, admitting that we're all wrong, climbing out of our comfort zone and into the wilderness of the unknown. So then, how do we respond? How you respond, how I respond, has everything to do with the original question, who am I? Who are you? Who we are is at the very heart of the matter. In the midst of all of this, who I am is the beginning of such questions. When everything has circled round once more to a head, where lines are beginning to be drawn in the sand, knowing is half the battle. So we must know. But let me make it clear. This conversation isn't about theology. It's not about religion. It isn't about policy. It isn't about politics. It's not about a party. It isn't about dogma. It also isn't about a teacher, a scholar, a pastor, or a president. These things... These figures of authority have no answers. It's truth. Fearless, raw God on his truth. It has nothing to do where the hordes of multitudes run to. If the hordes run off a cliff, do you follow? It has nothing to do with the majority. It has nothing to do with a consensus approval. It has everything to do with you. With me, the individual seeking and finding for themselves. But this is where the search begins. The question of who we are is not just about the few years we have to live on this earth, but has to do with the reason why you and I are here, and most of all, where you and I are going. But how do you find the answer? Who do you listen to? Where do you begin? What is truth? Who am I? Well, I'm starting that conversation. I'm asking those questions. I'm beginning the search. So who will join me at the table? Truth does have a final destination, and it is a definite one. My name is Javier Gonzalez, 
and the truth reel starts now.